0: What's up everyone? This is Basement Side. I'm Deeg. I'm here today with my friend Alan Lapidus? Am I saying your name right? Yeah, Lapidus. That's La- good. How's it going, Alan? It's going good. Pleased to hear that. Um, why don't you get you introduce yourself to the fine folks?
1: Uh so I'm Alan I'm Alan Lapidus. I'm a principal artist at Rogue Planet Games and currently the environment lead on Planet Side 2 franchise. Um I was the environment lead at the initial Planetside 2 launch. So it's good to be back on the project and, uh, pushing
0: the art. Excellent. We've seen a lot of new art coming into the game in the last year. It's been an exciting time to be a, uh, a Planetside fan and onlooker, I think. Um, and I want to do show off some of, some of your work there. I think I have Sanctuary right behind me. Something you worked on, right, Alan?
1: Yeah, me and, uh, Carlos Rodriguez and, uh, Wow, it's the end of the day, my brain's a little fried. And Josh Sorensen. Carlos. And Josh. Chris Bishop helped us out as well.
0: Ah, Chris Bishop, that's a name that I recognize from a long way back as well. He's been around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that a lot of the discussions I'm used to having with Planet Side players and streamers and stuff like that is kind of about design, gameplay design. Having actually talking to you as an artist is a bit of a of a new thing to me. So I wonder if I could ask you to indulge me by telling me a little bit about what an environment lead does versus what a principal artist does, where what the overlap is. Just help me understand what that means.
1: Sure. So a principal artist is really your title in the company, as in junior or associate, junior, full-time, senior, senior two, principal. It's kind of like as high as you can go as an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, the role is the environment lead, and it's my responsibility to manage large projects, You know, assign them if we have resources, work with outsourcers, uh, design a lot of what we're looking at based on the initial blockout that the designers will hand me. They'll say they need a play space that meets these bullet points, then I'll block something out. I'll present it to them. And once we've kind of found a middle ground where we like everything, we go in and I kind of direct the style. Sometimes I do concept art. Sometimes I just hit the ground running. Very cool.
0: So is there overlap then between like the idea in my head, which I apologize for because it's just in my head of like an old school, like shooter level designer who is kind of blocking out play spaces for actual combat and the art piece on top
1: of it? Uh, no, that would be our designers. So like okay. in the new facility I'm working on, the blockout was created by Kevin Moyer, uh, one of our designers. And you know he takes into account all those things like line of sight and flow and uh, defender versus attacker balance and any new gimmicks he wants to put in. Um, and then I'll take his blockout and I'll further refine it and present another blockout back. We'll have a discussion. Uh, a round table discussing what we like, what doesn't work, Mm -hmm. what our goals are. And then it gets handed back to me where I start actually making the art that fits those hallway layout and rooms.
0: Got it. So you work hand in hand with the people who design the play spaces. For sure. So what kind of considerations um, do you take into account when you're sitting down to actually make art for the places we love inhabiting?
1: Well, um, I try and play on the strengths of the ForgeLight engine where... It's exterior lighting is really good.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's interior lighting could use a lot of love, oh. but I try and leverage more geometry now. In the old days, we relied a lot on textures mm-hmm. and on normal maps, if you're familiar with those. Yes. It's basic. so for anyone who doesn't know, normal maps are basically red, green, blue information baked to a, an image texture. And when it's presented on a 3D model, it can fake the illusion of depth. Creating seams rises and falls to a degree. It doesn't actually deform the geometry So it has to be Mm -hmm. pretty shallow Um, In the old days we used to rely heavily on putting all that information in the textures um, But then our textures got really big we had to compress the textures down for performance Mm -hmm. And a lot of that started looking muddy. So these days i'm trying to rely more on poly count which Today's video cards can push ridiculous numbers of polys Mm So I'm really more in geometry and ambient occlusion, which is a pass that happens after everything is rendered that creates shadow information in mm. corners and cavities. And so that helps the game look a lot better for the interiors. Um, and also just shape language, you know? Does it feel like Nanite Systems? Does it feel like what we traditionally know as Nanite Systems? Does it feel like a more modern Nanite Systems? Because Nanite Systems is always evolving in the background. Uh huh. The, the factions have their shape language... And they're pretty faithful to it. But Nanite Systems is constantly evolving technology that the the factions are not aware of.
0: What would you say the current state of the design language for Nanite Systems is that?
1: Well, Nanite Systems still has the same sort of off-white to khaki palette. Mm-hmm. But, and it still has chamfered edges rather than bevels. You'll see a lot of cylinders and rounded forms for TR. Okay. You'll see... um S-curves, C-curves, and scalloped elements for uh, VS. Yeah. For NC, you'll definitely see a lot of boxy rectangular elements.
3: Uh Uh-huh.
1: And then for NS, it's that color palette, it's usually that charcoal, that uh, mid-tone off-white, and then you'll see some chrome or silvery accents, and emissives, and some some cabling, but mostly the, the shape language is chamfered corners.
0: And did you use those design languages when you were putting together? Say, um, you worked on the the new Endeavor weapons, right? I did, yeah. How much of that was you? All of it. All of it. I that, mean, the art wise. That, that's what I thought. So you didn't actually go through and make all the pew pew sounds yourself, did you?
1: No, that was <laughs> that was Homero, our sound designer, and he <laughs> he was excited to put in something that sounded a little more video gamey and. It sounded awesome. Shout out to him. I actually love it. Yeah. I have to tell you, though, as
0: as someone who's been um, primarily a Vanu player from my, from, throughout my Planet Side mm-hmm. career, sharing the pew pew with the other factions, I feel sometimes it feels a little bit like, hey, like that's my thing. But yeah, it, it depends how I'm feeling that day. Sometimes I'm like, the pew pew can just go around. Everyone can love this this lasery <laughs> goodness. I'm actually showing on the stream right now um, some of the Endeavor weapons, which are gorgeous. So, um, you used a a bunch of really great words there things like midtones, chamfered edges um and i'm i'm i think i'm seeing some of those things here i'm i'm when it comes to art i'm uh what would the word be an idiot i think
1: perhaps Um, no it's all technical terminology i learned
0: pretty early what my calling was and that what that was not it but um these are these are gorgeous weapons alan thank you I'm a complete, I'm a complete layman. I love the, all the detail on them. Um, the midtones is like so stuff that's not um, super dark or super bright, but kind of like halfway between's out. That, that means
1: exactly. Yeah. Uh, usually you have a three-tone palette to start with, which is your darks, your midtone, which is your your the majority of it, and uh-huh. your highlights. And yeah. where the darks and the highlights are, you'll get the highest amount of contrast, mm-hmm. and that's where your eye will be drawn. Mm-hmm. So the thing that will draw your eye are three things: a lot of detail a lot of small busy elements um high contrast lights next to darks and emiss and uh primary colors and emissives okay so you want to like spread things out to create a nice balance that helps the brain easily read the major forms before it says oh there's some interesting stuff over here and over here and I'll focus on that uh-huh. but the brain needs to be able to take the the whole thing in in the beginning and enjoy it yeah. and then it can appreciate the small stuff
0: yeah I think that what you just described is exactly my experience of it. Like, first blush, wow, these look great. And then the more my eyes spend time on it, the more I pick out stuff to be like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that looks nice. I like the way that's yeah. proportioned, the coloring. What you said about the highlights and the, the contrast, mm-hmm. I can totally pick those out. The finer details around one of the weapons I'm looking at right now on the stream, uh, like there's a bunch of like a uh, kind of like a, like a like a mesh around the grip. So my eyes are drawn to the grip because yeah. there's those fine details and the writing also. Whenever there's writing. Um, that kind of stuff. Uh, Alan, how did you come to, to, to art? Like, is this like a a lifelong calling for you that ended up coming to video
1: games or was it video games into art? How did that kind of work? I mean, I was always drawing as a kid, you know, just terrible doodles. But, um, I got a job in retail at the mall near my house. I worked at an old store called Babbage's. Oh yeah. uh, Yeah. Which was a competitor to, uh, like E. B. Games and GameStop, and I think that was before GameStop actually. But um, and then from there, um, someone from Interplay came by, and I helped them out with some technical stuff because I I had a home computer, so I knew about setting up Autoexec.bat and Config.sys and all that junk that you needed to know to get games to run on the old three eighty sixes. Oh wow! And so I was knowledgeable, and he said, "You know, you should come by. I'll put my name down as a reference." I did that, I got the job, worked at Interplay for a while, and then decided to go elsewhere. Went to Blizzard, which was actually in the same office park as Interplay, Mm -hmm. Um, and then worked in tech support for Blizzard. But I was always looking for my opportunity to get into development, and when that opportunity presented itself during um, Warcraft 3, I helped out with those uh, rendering those cinematics, doing cloth simulation. Oh, cool. So, like, uh, the one I worked on the most was that scene with uh, Thrall and Hellscream fighting Manoroth. If, I don't know if anyone gets that reference, but... Uh,
0: We're going to show it on the stream. That's way, <laughs> way too specific, not to Warcraft lore. Grom and Thrall kill Manoroth and free the Horde. Yeah. Okay.
1: And then Hellscream sacrifices himself. Yes, I but know exactly yeah.
3: what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, and so there was a lot of, like, braids and tassels flying around from, uh, I think it was... Thrall had his hair in braids. So I had to do a lot of that's done via simulations. So I worked on that stuff. And then I was able to return for an opportunity internally. Blizzard was looking for level designers Mm -hmm. amongst. It was looking externally and internally. And so I was able to use their tools, put together a level, show them that I had a good eye for composition. And then I got hired onto World of Warcraft and worked on many of the World of Warcraft vanilla zone.
0: That's exciting, so yeah. at the time at the time you were working on World of Warcraft, how many people were also working on the game?
1: Oh man. I'd have to like literally count them in my head. Uh, I want to say probably fifty or seventy,
0: okay. early, early days. So the, yeah, the vanilla I mean, release. there was
1: like there was like four of us in our office. There was like three guys in the next office. Like I literally have to think office by office and count uh-huh. the people to get a tally but uh yeah it was a lot of fun
0: so you got your break and you're doing you're actually doing this kind of get get a chance to do to do this artistic work on world of warcraft at that time like did you have a sense of like being in a moment or was it just like i'm excited to do to do what i do i'm gonna sit down and focus on it like
1: what was that like i I was a big everquest player and Uh ashram ashram's call player okay so i enjoyed those early days of 3d mmos uh and then I was so excited that Blizzard was doing an MMO, especially, you know, their art was so innovative at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, you only really saw that sort of stylized painterly look in, like, early Pixar movies and Blizzard. Mm-hmm. I mean, nowadays it's ubiquitous. Yeah. Nowadays you're seeing more stylized realism, even.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, but it was, yeah, it was fantastic and a lot of talent to people, a lot of fun it was exciting and there was always this thrill that you're working for Blizzard, which is like one of the biggest names in the industry. Even back then. That's awesome. Yeah, even back then. I mean, I could I can't think of anyone who was bigger than Blizzard at the time. Yeah. Well, at that
0: time they had done StarCraft, the Warcraft Warcraft and all the Warcraft games like you mentioned, World Warcraft coming out. Um I mean, Diablo. Yeah. Diablo, of course. Um I guess it's easy to look at Blizzard now and think about them back then being small, being small by comparison. But compared to the rest of the industry, they were still pretty, pretty, pretty huge.
1: Yeah, I mean, we had a, we had like four sections of a fairly large office park building. I think the company in total must have had a couple hundred people working and supporting different products, and QA and tech support were in there as well. Yeah, I've. It may just
0: be like Google algorithming me or something, but I feel like I've noticed a a bit of a trend of like old uh people who uh, not old people of people who worked on the old original uh world of warcraft coming out as and being more involved in the creator scene and streaming and just talking about
1: the experience of working on the original game um yeah i don't know i mean it's it was definitely a fantastic experience anybody who's in dev will tell you that if you get on a project that got, that is a huge success, it opens so many doors for you. And the same with film, uh-huh. you know? You, you could be, this could be your first film gig, but if you're in the credits of whatever, Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. it's gonna open so many doors for you on the next project you go on. And that's what Warcraft did for me, because when Vivendi purchased uh, Blizzard, part of it was Blizzard was already deeply in debt for the development of World of Warcraft. Uh-huh. And so, as part of that, Vivendi asked Blizzard to do a series of layoffs right be- right when the pro- after the product si- shipped. Oh, uh, of course. Yeah. that's And out. so people who were making too much, who were like, whatever, whatever the uh, things were, uh, got let go. So I got let go as well. Mm-hmm. But there was a really nice severance package and I invested that in further education. And then after that, I went back and looked who else was big in the industry and it was SOE at the time. Okay. So that would have been early,
0: mid-2000s,
1: right? I want to say it was like one year after WoW was released, whatever
0: sure. that is. I think that's 2005. So so mid-2000s, oh SOE. And
1: what did you work on when you landed at SOE? So SOE wanted to do a kids-stylized painterly game to compete with uh, Wizard 101 and RuneScape. And they wanted it to be uh, family-friendly. They wanted it to be streaming. So... This was before everything was streaming they wanted no downloads they wanted to be free to play hmm. so this was at the inception of that whole like paradigm uh and they brought me on to work on free realms which is what you see in my portfolio that yeah Seussian, almost burton-esque style mixed in with wow but at lower res textures because we were streaming so we couldn't push the fidelity that wow had mm-hmm. now, i don't know a lot about free realms what was that what was that title like it was a fun title. Um, it, the idea was you had fairies and humans and whimsical trolls and elves and they all lived in like i said this like susian esque fantasy world but the idea was that it was how do i explain it it was a little bit like you had all these mini games scattered throughout this open sandbox world and the mini games allowed you to collect classes and upgrade your classes there was combat there were outfits there was a uh, microtransactions in the store There was all sorts of amazing animation and character design on it that made it just look like this crazy mishmash of cartoon elements. Like you Mm -hmm. could ride a giant cartoon squid, throw down a boombox, and everyone's dancing Thriller. (laughs) That's pretty cool. That's great MMO stuff. Yeah, Yeah, it's really crazy.
0: Um, And uh, I'm definitely seeing some some of what you're talking about where they're trying to hook into what was successful with World of Warcraft with some of that similar stuff and stuff you're showing on your portfolio. Um, I gotta ask Alan, just like morbid curiosity, morbid curiosity, but I'm just totally curious, like if you have any, like any stories from those times that, that you want to tell or any particular interesting anecdotes about working on those games. Cause I feel like these games, both the original world of Warcraft and free realms. And I'm sure so much stuff you worked on during those, those, those years too, in like the mid to early two thousands, um, they're kind of like part of gaming lore, I feel like.
1: Yeah, I mean, World of Warcraft was a fantastic experience. I worked with a lot of really talented people, and it was fun watching other, you know, IPs being developed. During the development of World of Warcraft, Ghost was being developed with the StarCraft console title. Right. And so that was it was kind of fun um, to see the way the game was kind of being designed one way, then being designed another. And ultimately, that's what caused its cancellation that was uh, there development was development
3: hell, kind of.
0: It's...
1: Yeah, unfortunately, they would know if it was going to be an action adventure game, more of a Metal Gear stealth game.
2: Because
1: hmm. I mean, Starcraft, you want to mow down, you know, hordes of Zerg, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Zerg. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and sorry. And, uh, Origination of the, the term. You're right, <laughs> but as but as a but as a ghost, you're supposed to be a stealth character.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they really didn't know which how they wanted it to go, and then. But they had a lot of really great story, and it really brought that world to life. You got to go to, like, a Protoss world and interact with Protoss. You know, what could have been. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there were other titles that they tried. Um, I know that they spoke about this, but they wanted to do Warcraft Adventures. Mm -hmm. That was a point-and-click action, or a point-and-click game, in the style of the old Sierra games, like King's Quest. Oh, of course. Yeah. That unfortunately didn't pan out. They were trying to work with a third party to do the art, but the tone didn't quite land, yeah. and it was too slow in development. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, it was just fantastic environment on WoW Like you could walk into Adam Adham's office, who was like the CEO of one of the CEOs of the company, with Mike Morheim, and you could just he was open to talk and chit chat about ideas on where the games where the game is going to plan to do things. I remember adamantly trying to pitch Death Knights in vanilla and i was like we gotta have death knights man like, <laughs> i love playing a shadow knight in eq and there's nothing like that in wow uh-huh and he was like man maybe later but we just got so much we're trying to pack in uh-huh. and i hear you but thematically where is it gonna live like you can't just have death knights rolling around lord ron
0: yeah yeah you gotta pack a, a good excuse for him and they packed in a fantastic excuse yeah. with uh bundling it in with um the expansion about Arthas, so. For sure. Smart.
1: So yeah, it was just fun and really a great experience.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's awesome, Alan. And um, I have a thousand questions bubbling up in my head. Um, <laughs> I guess, like, one of the questions I have, so, okay, people with open doors, um, things change over time, industry trends. Um, how how do you find working on games um, hmm Maybe this question isn't well enough formed in my head. Oh, let's move on. We can come back to <laughs> it if, 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 if it jumps out at me. This is something that I do. Um, So, World of Warcraft. They lay off a bunch of people, launch into SOE, starting on Free Realms. What's next?
1: Well, after Free Realms, uh, Free Realms had its success. It was doing well. Um, And then I believe my next project was Clone Wars Adventures.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And... Yeah, Clone Wars Adventures was, they wanted hand-painted textures, so I had the experience for that, and I was the environment lead there. We got to work with LucasArts, and we got access to their uh, vault of photography from the sets. That's exciting. Yeah, so I was just being able to surf at, like, a lot of the sets and props and kind of see what is outside the boundaries of the camera. So... Yeah, it was really It was really useful and helpful for getting a sense of like, what does Coruscant buildings look like up close? What's in the Jedi Temple that you don't see? Mm-hmm. Except for that one hallway they always seem to walk down.
3: Right. The hallway.
1: Yeah, the hallway. And so we were able to kind of take the style of the Clone Wars Adventures TV show and translate that into a hand-painted texturally style that was very close to the show. Mm-hmm. Um. And it once again, it was a little bit like Free Realms, but it was more like you had a central hub like Destiny, where it was the Jedi Temple. You would kind of run around, socialize, and interact with people, and then there was mini games in each of the rooms. So there was a tower defense mini game, a lightsaber dueling. There was speeder racing, which was like space Harrier. You would fly around the screen and dodge things and shoot it. Okay. It was on rails, but it was really great because like there would be huge space battles, and you'd have massive like starships coming in from the side of the screen and you're like, oh, my God, am I going to hit it? And then, like, the rail takes you up and over and down into the <laughs> hangar bay. It was, it was actually really cinematic.
0: Yeah. A lot of those old rail games were, were quite cinematic. Think of, like, uh, yeah. Rebel Assault is another game that, that floats to mind.
1: Mm. Yeah, Yeah, but that was fun. And uh I got to work with great people, and I had a lot of fun on that project. It was a great to have a Star Wars game
2: mm-hmm.
1: on my uh CV as well. And then after that, I got pulled over to... Uh, environment lead on a new project that they were starting up called Planetside Next,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: later became Planetside 2. Okay, they had done some prototyping with the technology to see how they could push the look of the game and how is it going to be more MMO with inventory or is it going to be more like moment to moment gunplay like Battlefield? And how do those conversations go? Well, I mean, that was mostly. Yeah, I mean those mostly Higby, uh, kind of uh-huh. steering the design of the game, and steel, uh steering like the quality of the art.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Tremel really like had a vision for what he wanted the fidelity of the game to look like, and so you know, and how,
0: how did you plug into that? What was your role at that time?
1: Oh well, I was managing the artists we had for the environment. I mean, we were making mm-hmm. all of these maps and structures and buildings and new textures. And uh, I was doing project management as well as uh, art creation. Got it. Uh, working on a lot of the zones, textures, placing stuff, composition. Um, yeah, so, I mean it was great, and a lot of fun.
0: That's cool. And he, hearing those names, Matt Higby, T Ray, uh, mm-hmm. definitely uh, r- rings the bell of a lot of a lot of uh, PlanetSide players who've been around. Um, you so you worked on uh, and helped manage the the art and the environment design for Amarrish. Indar and
1: Esmir, all three of those books. correct, right. yeah. Okay. Uh, I, couldn't, I can't tell you exactly what I did on each of them because I don't really recall, but I was touching a lot of things. I was making assets. I was working on textures. I was doing lighting. Mm-hmm. I was just bouncing around a lot, handing stuff off or providing feedback or doing paint overs, working with outsourcers. So it sounds like you kind of wore a few different hats. Yeah, I mean, that's what a lead has to do. Yeah. Uh, being able to actually do art is sometimes a luxury depending mm, how much, how much you have to manage. We had a team of about, I want to say 12 environment artists for Planetside 2. Mm-hmm. So, and we were pretty well managed um, with scrum, so we always knew what was coming down the pipe and how long it would take. And we sat in a big open area with design, so there was a lot of collaboration going on as the art was being made.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember what I can about anecdotes about the development of Planetside. The sense I have is that it was it was pretty a pretty rapid development period. Do you remember how long the game was in the oven before it got
1: to retail? Well, I know that Plan Side Next was in development for some time and that uh-huh. was the foundation for the Forge Light technology and some of the game models right, the were already engine. created. Yeah, so some of the game models were already created. Mm-hmm. By the time I came or by the time I came on, they had much of the technology and tools for getting the art in the game set up. Um, and some of it was being developed still. So we hit the ground running and started making our first zone, Indar, and uh, building the ships and the cockpits and all that stuff. What jumps out at you as
0: something from that period that you're especially proud of?
1: Uh, I have a funny anecdotal story. Proud of, I, I mean, I'm proud of everything that we created. Uh-huh. Um, it, I know that a lot of settings had to be like toned down. Like The game was visually really impressive, mm-hmm. and the sense of flight was fantastic, but I know that... Some of the sky settings had to be removed or toned down, mm-hmm. some of the objects got removed, the textures down resed in order for performance. Because right. there's always going to be people who want, you know, that 160 FPS. So that's one of I pay so the potato settings. I I didn't want
0: it. I, I was gonna how far into this to get before admitting it to you. I feel a little bad about it talking to the principal artist, but yeah. Uh, I I I do, okay. <laughs> I do screen archery with ultra and I do the actual gameplay of the potato. It's a push pull, yeah. man. It's tough.
3: Yeah.
0: How do you feel about
3: that?
1: I mean, I, I wish that shadows were not as big of a performance hit right. because shadows are so much part of the formula uh-huh. of what you see. And when you, because of the way the lighting is calculated, especially for outdoors, so when you go in into an interior and you have shadows off, you're basically it's like there's no roof. You're yeah. getting the sun glaring off everything, and it's just harsh.
0: Yeah, yeah. It it, it feels kind of weird, but you're right. Yeah. Shadows have Historically and continue to, and all games have a relatively high performance cost yep. for, uh, versus the visual benefit you get.
1: Could we pause for one second?
0: Yeah, right back. Of course. Yeah, I just need, need. Yep. All right, folks, we're breaking for a couple minutes. Yeah, those Reddit posts that come up every, uh, every, uh, every once in a while. Looking back at the way the game looked originally, you can thank Alan and folks for that. The tints on Amrish and Indar were so nice. Yeah. So I actually have, looking over Alan's portfolio here, some screenshots he has. I wonder if these are taken with the current engine or if he actually had these squirreled away from from back in the day. Look at this, this Indar panorama. Can I make this bigger? Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> Apparently there there are ways to view them, to view these things the way they used to be, huh, Rhett? Interesting. Yeah, I'm actually learning a lot in this conversation. Um, the art of Planet Side well, has always really jumped out at me, you know? Look at this. The thing about Planet Side, and this is even true back in Planet Side One, is so much of the interesting like landscape and environment stuff is like is like between the bases and you don't see it all the time. Look at this shot. How often do you see this? Probably not much. Do you guys remember? Um in I can't remember if it was Planet Side One or two. I think it was may, it might have been one, but on Ishindar, which which I think is the <laughs> the non shortened version of indar I uh, shundar there was a um a landscape feature that looked like a skeleton if you looked at it from far enough away um, I don't know what I'm talking about maybe some put me on a out of my misery by helping me remember that one. It's very patience, oh hey Alan. no worries. Hey. We were just looking over some of the uh some of the shots from your portfolio of of indar back in the day. I was wondering whether these were these were um Taken in the current engine, or if they were um, from from back in the day?
1: Oh, they're from back in the day. You can tell by the god rays in the fog, Ah. where the objects are occluding the light, causing those rays to appear. Yeah. Like when the whole valley is in shadow, the softness you're seeing is those god rays in the fog. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, but unfortunately, that was a performance hit. And back in the day, we had apex particles, which were those like crazy spiraling effects you see in a lot of games apex particles yeah they're called apex they're basically particles that react to physics so they can bounce off the surface of a tank you know oh were those like the like the nvidia things exactly oh
0: right yeah i remember there being a big deal made about that in the
1: marketing too yeah but again for performance reasons everything had to be toned down or turned off yeah um yeah but i mean we sorry go on
0: no no go ahead please
1: uh, you know, we packed a lot of bells and whistles into the game, and then we were found that there was some per- there were performance hits, and you know you have to make the game run before people can appreciate the art. Right, and um, so did
0: that? I appreciate the pragmatism that you approach that with, because I could I could imagine a world where someone who's who's responsible for producing the visuals would might feel some resentment uh at essentially uh a need to strip a lot of what makes it beautiful back for some other goal
1: um it's not obviously it's not ideal but uh like i said i mean you can make the most beautiful game but if it doesn't run you know if it's if it's a gorgeous game but people aren't having fun because the frames are terrible or they crash desktop because their system can't handle it what's the point in that
0: yeah that's a good point and it seems to be um i think in in hindsight there's there's a lot of a lot of questions about whether omfg actually had long term benefits on performance like like an idea that maybe some of those things over time got reintroduced in different ways or whatever was was the the tight performance improvements that were made at the time got loosened up yeah. at, at the edges i mean which is a a thing that makes sense for a game that gets iterated on so frequently
1: I don't, yeah, I don't think it's that the performance gains were lost. I just think that we're adding new stuff to the game constantly. I right. mean, bastions and new zones and constantly adding new armor and weapons. Um, you know, it, it's not a static environment to be able to test the uh, performance on. Sure. Things It's very dynamic. How many people are dying on the screen at the same time mm-hmm. affects performance, you know? Uh, how many people are shooting? How much C4 is going off? How many orbital strikes are going off in a small area?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and what's yeah. an acceptable target, and what's the average player's hardware going to look like?
1: Yeah, the acceptable target is obviously the NC.
0: <laughs> yes, I think I think it's something most of us can get behind, right, guess. Yeah. Right,
1: chat? As well as the NC. <laughs>
0: yeah, they totally agree.
1: Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, like any game, especially when you're coding your own engine, you got to put a little column A into column B, and yeah, I would love it if the game looked as gorgeous as it did from day one, but I don't know. I mean, the engine was proprietary, the coders that originally worked on the engine, uh, you know, handed it off to the next generation of coders mm-hmm. working on the engine, mm-hmm. and we'd love to continue to iterate and improve, and we're constantly improving performance, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always hearing in meetings about things that um, Chris R our program our lead programmer right uh, is doing and tweaking in the back end to help for performance identifying things that are affecting performance on servers and you know making adjustments to improve it but it's just the massive scale of things going on man it's hard to just sometimes it's just hard to identify exactly what's causing you yeah. know that choke.
0: Yeah because when you have a massive scale you have a massive number of variables, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: And- Reproducibility of, on that scale is just infeasible a lot of the time. Yeah, I can imagine that, that that that's a struggle and something you need to chip away at over time. Well, I mean, I've seen the benefits too. Um, the actual, I mean, going to the modern game, um, the, the introduction of DirectX 11 um, and the 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 overall how that impacted my at at the time just upgraded system uh, was remarkable. And then over time, uh, all the little little loose ends around the dx um, 11 yeah. uh got got shored up um so to me the game that right now is is it, the most playable it's ever been which in turn makes me able to go back and crank up some of the visuals so it's it's kind of sure. nice
1: and as i commented i'm trying to lean on what the engine does best and that is represent things with ambient occlusion specular surfaces things that are shiny sorry shiny surfaces look the best um and just you know create the environments that take that lean on those strengths okay and has your
0: approach to so i i find myself sliding so i, I don't want to forget that after you worked mm-hmm. on planet side you also you also did some other work um yeah because i actually really want to jump to talk about the modern game but i i don't want to forget to hit on a few things sure um so after maybe we can just, we can just pin that and come back to it sure After the Planetside release, um, you put out these three lovely continents, and then what came next for you?
1: Well, there was a new project being started up, um, and I was always interested in working on the EverQuest franchise. You know, Mm. I've been working on sci-fi for some time. As
0: an old school EverQuest player,
1: yeah. Of course. And they were talking about some really ambitious big ideas, and so I wanted to be part of that. They were talking about a voxel destructible world. Uh, having NPC factions being able to be like moved in and out of areas, using a- you know AI in the background to like beat back the orcs, but then the orcs steadily start making a comeback, and it's all very ambitious, big big idea stuff, pie in the sky, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, sounds like it.
1: Um, but so the project was called initially EverQuest Next, which is uh, for some reason some of the. Uh, sort of a code name they used for a lot of their, let's work on a sequel or a spinoff. That's not exactly the sequel.
3: Uh-huh, okay. Um,
1: and so, yeah, so we started working on it and the technology was being developed at the time. And there was a lot of questions like, how do you build a giant, massive voxel world? Do we have the tools to build that? Like in Minecraft, you hit generate, and it generates this random procedural world, mm-hmm. but that doesn't always necessarily mean you're gonna have interesting arrangement and placement, right? Right, I mean, in a game of EverQuest, certain things have to be always be there in certain locations.
0: Yeah, you don't want it to be completely randomized. Cause that's that's unplayable yeah. and, and and uninteresting.
1: Right, and completely randomized doesn't always look pretty.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, you you have to look at a game like um, No Man's Sky to see, wow, there's a lot of gorgeous planets, and then there's a few planets where you're like, eh, the variables that got thrown in the pot and stir and mixed together are not very pleasing.
0: Mm-hmm. Came out kind of bland to- or harsh.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you can't go 100% procedural. So we were trying to find the way to find that balance between curated content, procedural content, and fan-made content, because we wanted to engage the community with a game that was mutable like that.
0: Those are big goals. I didn't know that that, that project had such lofty uh, aspirations. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did working on that go? Obviously, the game never, never got to a consumer audience.
1: Yeah, so... um I mean, it had its own difficulties internally, but there was also the limitations of the technology and the amount of time it would take to create the technology needed. Mm-hmm. So EverQuest Next became EverQuest Landmark, and Landmark became sort of an intermediary project that would engage the community to help them create content and kind of test the tools so that we could crowdsource at, you know, sort of QA the stuff and also get people building and tell us what okay. would make their building experience better.
0: That's super progressive. I like the sound of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we it was a heavily community-driven game, community interaction. We had web streams where we would showcase community builds. And um, some of the stuff you see on my portfolio are awards that I created to give to people in the community based on themed builds. So whenever we That's created cool. a new kit, let's say the Ogre kit, we had the ogre models and we knew what they were going to look like and we had concept art for their civilization and i and we would like me and the other artists would sit down we'd build out some voxel t- materials and some props and we'd hand them to the users and say what do you guys think what can you create out of this and we wanted to see like if their stuff was kind of samey we needed to add more stuff to it
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know and that allowed us to keep moving forward and building new stuff while the community kind of you know, chewed on stuff, and they could see if it was fun or underwhelming. And man, the stuff the community built always knocked our socks off. Hmm. They were just so talented, so creative.
0: It's hard to match the passion of invested gamers, right?
1: Yeah. And then, you know, part of the goal, I've said, as I've said in the past, was that the people who had the most elaborate best builds, you could basically select um, a cube around the build, and then create a blueprint out of it. Mm-hmm. And you could then place that. So people were selling those on the on the marketplace in the game. So they could sell their build for a dungeon, for a castle, for an interesting uh minecart. And huh. they would share them. But the ones that got the best, we were going to actually use as part of the cities that the NPCs would live in. Uh-huh. And maybe we could find, and we were planning to put some way to say this was this design was built by this gamer because mm-hmm. we really wanted to involve the community as we were making the game. That's world. cool. So all like the rest of the town would be built by our us devs, but there'd be one or two houses, or maybe three houses for second and third, that would be built by the fans that were in that town.
3: Uh huh. Uh huh. And
1: then that was the showcases. Uh-huh. Plan. Yeah, and. Uh, because we didn't want to abuse the community's investment in the game or use them as free labor. Mm-hmm. It was always going to be on us, but we definitely wanted to thank them for their engagement and their passion.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that's quite a line to ride when you're giving the community so much agency and there's, there's so much ability to just take what they've built and make it part of your world to tribute, give them a tribute, but not to give the appearance of, um, build our game
3: for us. Right. Uh-huh.
2: Mm.
1: And uh, yeah, so, I mean, that went along. It, it also faced some road bumps similar to what I described on Ghost, where as the tool kind of took on a life of its own, they weren't sure if they should be making Landmark as a creative build game like Minecraft,
2: mm-hmm. or if
1: it needs to be a survival game that has an economy of its own and a marketplace and adventure and scripted events. Okay. And so there were two camps. They were like, "Look, we're just making, we're helping test the tool, so we can make Everquest next." And the other ones like, "Well, we want to keep people engaged. Let's add in new monsters and let's add in new Ah. scripting tech and AI and pathing." Mm -hmm. And we're like, "Well, we're taking development time from you know pile A and putting it into pile B. There's only so much dev time to go around." Right. And uh, yeah. So I mean, it made some fantastic stuff, but ultimately, it they could They didn't want to persist putting money into it, not where we couldn't see a clear end to it,
0: yeah, that's a shame. That's a very interesting, interesting development story where mm-hmm. there's such openness to community collaboration. It's almost like it actually took away from having a defined enough vision to to push for and to actually make a compelling business case.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the thing with game dev is I've been on projects where the plan has a very clear vision from the get go uh-huh. and it's executed and it's driven by a charismatic lead. On World of Warcraft, it was Chris Metzen. Him and mm-hmm. Sammy, they were in the meetings. They were joking around, like, without, just as an anecdote. Um, whenever there was a new zone for me to work on, we would get together with the designers and Chris was there on front of a whiteboard and Chris would just basically look over the synopsis of the zone and he'd like do his pitch to us uh-huh. and he was like full of energy and he was cracking us up he was hilarious uh-huh. he was like all right so these 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 night elves are here and they're just rocking out and they're just like chilling like cider and stuff and and then these orcs are rolling in and they're like we need this lumber to build war machines and then the elves are like uh, you know it's like screw you guys uh-huh. okay so there's conflict over there they're trying to kill the trees but then the elves the elves are just totally going to be summoning this thing over here to knock those orcs on their asses uh, <laughs> and he's just like, yeah, it was just really funny watching how animated he was describing yeah, all this. It sounds just like Metzen too. Not a bad impression. <laughs> <laughs> it's Metson. Metson is like, Metson is awesome because he's like, he's got the voice of like a motor, like a, a badass, uh-huh. mo, like a, the what, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a like a motorcycle micro motorcycle gangster, yeah, yeah. but he's, but he's like the nicest, super nicest, professional, sweetest guy you'll ever meet, uh-huh. very friendly, like no ego whatsoever, really great guy, uh, and Sammy is like a constant smile on his face, he just wants to draw and do fun stuff, and uh-huh. he like plays d and d and just he's just such a great oh man, all the blizzard guys were just amazing. that's awesome what a great, what a great. What a great picture that paints in my head. Um... So that was a segue. But what I was getting at is sometimes you have a clear vision with charismatic lead, like Side 2, okay. and Higby and Tramiel. Yeah. They had a very clear vision of what they wanted, especially Higby. Yeah. Um, and then you have games where there's an ambition to achieve something, but it hasn't been completely crystallized. Okay. And so at some point you have to like put boots to the ground and say, well, there's some questions we can't answer until we see what technology we have, until we see how mm-hmm. it plays. Okay. We need the prototype or it's vertical slice. It's left open a little bit. Yeah. And in some cases, they're like, well, we need to create what's called a vertical slice, which is like a tiny piece of the bigger game mm-hmm. that we can experience if it's fun or not.
0: Yeah, it has all the stuff that's going to be central to it.
1: Right. And sometimes those sort of projects can lose their way or get derailed by other things that happen.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: or personalities on the team that come in conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can never tell. Sometimes those things also just crystallize during development and everything works out. Clone Wars Adventures, we came into it with a very kind of loose vision of what we wanted, but that crystallized during development and there were no road bumps. And Mm -hmm. we delivered a really fun package. In fact, I am contacted still on ArtStation by fans of the game asking me how I did certain art for certain things because they're trying to copy the art style or huh. they give me these impassioned anecdotes of times they played it when they were a kid. And I that's love that.
0: That's awesome, man. That's got to keep you going when you get those. Oh, yeah.
1: I love it. Um, and
0: so Clone Wars yeah, so is an example cool. of a game that came together without having a charismatic leader with a defined vision right out front. I guess right. from what you tell me about the game and I'm just learning it from you, uh, that it's kind of based on having one, like a hub with mini games and stuff that kind of makes sense. It seems yeah. like it, it, it's a very like, like wheel with spokes kind of design. And, mm-hmm. um, and I guess the question I want to ask you, and you don't have to answer this is, can you give me an example of a game that I, I, I guess landmark then c- coming back is an example of a game where that didn't go well.
1: Yeah, and there was more, I mean, there was a lot of factors. There was uh, some ambitions that were different between the personalities on the team. Mm -hmm. There was technology that was promised but never manifested. Okay. There was uh, limitations that became apparent only once the technology had been made. Uh Uh-huh. Like, when you have this really high-resolution mutable world and people are constantly manipulating the terrain, that's a lot of data being sent up and downstream. Okay. And keeping that synced for everyone standing around watching it before it starts getting choppy yeah. is, uh, is hard to figure out.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Because um yeah, character synchronization is a big thing, and interpolation and stuff like that, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know a lot about this stuff. I have a layperson's understanding. But if the whole world can be muted and... Um, so at any given point, when you're in a, when you're in a 3d game, you're, you're not rendering and seeing the whole world, right? You're seeing the right. part of it that matters to you. So whenever, whenever you travel, you would have to down, like redownload what all the changes that happened since the last time you were there. Right.
1: Exactly. And that's, and that's expensive for paying for the servers to send mm-hmm. all that data through as the company running it. Like we're sending all that data to people. Hmm. So we're paying for that. You don't think about more, server
0: bandwidth costs being a limiting factor, yeah, but it was it it makes became sense. a
1: reality for a game like that. Um, so yeah, the game kind of unfortunately um, dissolved, mm. and then development ceased. Uh, there were a lot of fans who reached out, people who really enjoyed playing that game. Um, fantastic, creative people who, in fact, some of the artists that um, we w- worked with, some of the community members, they've still taken that original vision and are running with it. Um, I can't remember his um, ID on Twitter, but one of the artists that was really passionate about the game is still trying to remake the game in Unity.
3: Oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah, so the dream, keeping it alive.
0: Gotta love the Unity remakes. Yeah, and that's then a-
1: from, Yeah, sorry. Go
0: oh, I was just going to reminisce how interesting it is, the, the scene of um, some of these old games. The, the, the current technology getting to the point where people who are passionate hobbyists can bring back some of these old games that previously could only be depl- deployed and run by, sure. you know, uh, big companies. Um,
1: yeah, it, I mean, something like Landmark isn't going to be as easy as something else. That was a lot of proprietary technology that yeah. never became public.
0: And and of course, a Unity version of it is going to be more of like a visual showcase than an actual sure. s- slice of the functional game. Yeah, I wouldn't have any of the back end. But yeah, I don't know. You, you're mentioning that made me think of it, though. Like, um, gaming has gotten, I mean, Alan, you you know this better than anyone, like gaming has gotten enormous since you were, you were doing tech support for StarCraft.
3: (laughs) Like,
1: yeah, I mean, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's, it's beating film sometimes.
0: Yeah. I think I saw that, that, that number the other day and it re-blew my mind because in some ways, culturally gaming still lags behind more traditionally accepted art forms like like music and cinema mm-hmm. um i think it'll take a generational shift for that attitude to change and then i wonder what we'll see come out then um and well, now now we're really that. tangenting but sorry go ahead
1: no you're seeing some of that already i mean um like i can't remember the name of the company the one did De- detroit human detroit become human
3: i'll just look it up because i can't remember I think it's Quantum
1: dream or something like that that sounds right um I mean, you have studios out there trying to tell serious stories and create gameplay experiences. You have um the last of us, you know? you mm-hmm. have stories, games that are trying to create a very immersive cinematic experience. You know, you've got your fun goofball games. you've got your Mario parties. you've got your shooter games that put you in the thick of action. But those are easy to pick up and put down. and they have emergent uh, they have emergent elements that, Wow, it's crazy! This happened because I did this, and this guy just happened to be walking around the corner, and that was a fun experience. Mm-hmm. And then there are games where every little m- moment is scripted to really like resonate with you, yeah, and it sticks with you, yeah. yeah,
0: to have the maximum like emotional valence.
1: Uh, Bioshock, right? The yeah. big reveals. Bioshock Infinity at the end of it, I was just like, I just played through like a. Forty-hour-long Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, <laughs> you
0: know, yeah, it
1: really does have that vibe.
0: <laughs> yeah, the batteries are getting pushed. I mean, as long as the, I'm, I'm guessing that as long as the the interest is there, it's just going to keep getting bigger. Um, I, I like, I'm guessing you are. I've always just been so compelled by virtual worlds. For me, like, um, the thing that made me like kind of click when it comes to gaming is the first time I played, got my hands on Mario sixty four at a, mm-hmm. um, a Toys R Us, a kiosk. Um, like I just had something turn over in my mind when I did that, and I was like, "There can be a <laughs> world in there." Like, I was, I let's see, sixty four came out in ninety six, so I would have been like twelve or thirteen when that happened. Yeah. Um, and that that for me was what got it all
3: started. <clears throat> um, so
1: you know, I-, I loved video games as a kid. Yeah. Went my friend's house to play. But the thing that really made me want to be in video game development was the RPGs cuz they created these virtual worlds that sucked you in. Uh-huh. I mean, you had your old Ultimas on the PC, mm-hmm. right? And you had your uh JRPGs. I remember like one of my earlier JRPGs was Fantasy Star and Fantasy Star 2 on mm-hmm. the Genesis mm-hmm. on the Master System. And like they really suck you in. No. Full disclosure, I was still a kid and anime was new, and like all of those tired tropes that today I can't stand because I've seen them a thousand times were like blowing my mind. It's like, what? <laughs> you know, yeah. the yeah. elf girl who's also a cat girl or something like is about to die and the villain's gonna get away. Yeah. Like, you don't see that in Western animation, uh-huh. but now you're like, oh yeah, I know this is gonna happen.
0: <laughs> uh, the curse of the internet is we all learn from each other so quickly these days,
1: yeah. Ignorance is bliss. Sometimes,
0: yeah. So, tell me a little bit about um, the games of your youth. What what were the ones that really stand out to you as like being inspirational or really uh, important to you?
1: I really enjoyed the Ultimas. Yeah, I loved the world that they were creating. The persistent elements. I mean, the Ultimas were heavily influenced by the um, pulp fiction of the seventies, like um, John Carter of Mars. Oh yeah. The idea that you're the avatar who lives on Earth and these moon gates pull you into this alternate world where you are the hero. It's basically John Carter coming from Earth to Mars to be, you know, the hero, go on these crazy adventures, then he comes back to Earth, then he goes back.
0: Could you tell, for those of us who, like, don't know much about Ultima, and I might be a little bit like one of them, should you just tell me a little bit about the game? Like, what is it?
1: So Ultima was an old-school fantasy game. Um, Initially, it started in, like, like the really early computer days where graphics looked like Atari graphics. Uh-huh. And it was just like, like the early Final Fantasies were just like that, you know, like little on a grid, moving your little icon character around. And the Ultimas just started being innovative. They were made in the garage by Richard Garriott.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And he was pushing boundaries on what RPGs could do and cr- carrying interesting systems. But he also persisted the mythology between his games as he created sequels. Uh-huh. And the concept was that every time you return, you're the same protagonist returning, but time has passed in the world of Britannia.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So new villains pop up, um, new magic, new technology, but you've just, like, you put down the video game and you went to school for a couple months and then the next video game came out, you picked it up and it's like, you were the Avatar, you've been gone for whatever, a hundred years, I can't believe you're back. Uh-huh. And so th- he really liked to blur those lines, like kind of uh-huh. make it a meta experience. That's and it was neat. fun. And in fact, in the later Ultima games, there's literally an opening cinematic where the protagonist is sitting at his computer and he's, and there's a full moon outside and he sees like an e- a lunar eclipse. And as he gets up and steps out into his backyard, there's like a circle of stones and a moon gate opens, taking <laughs> him into Britannia. Of course. So, you know, it's it's great.
0: Playing with but reality. Like said,
1: yeah, it leans on those pulp fiction tropes okay. and it plays to the fantasies of that era of pencil and paper RPG games. Uh-huh.
0: And I know you mentioned that we're looking at like Atari level graphics in, the, in those days, but did anything about the art and or environment design of those games um, stick with you?
1: Not so much the okay. Ultima games, maybe okay. Ultima Online, but it was fun to just explore. And games like Ultima Online and ashram's Call, you there were these real time giant worlds mm-hmm. and you really wanted to see what was over the next horizon. And mm-hmm. someone had been there But, I mean, sometimes you would stumble upon loot on the floor from monsters that were killed, and you're like, oh, someone's here. Uh And if there was PvP, you had to be on your guard, you Uh know? But even if it wasn't, like, maybe the big boss that you couldn't get past had been taken out by that hero. Yeah. Yeah, what do you think about, like... So what you just described is, like,
0: the explorer's experience approaching these online worlds. In in some ways, I kind of feel like the post-social media post Twitch experience of these online worlds is at a place where it's very hard to explore anything anymore because things are so well mapped by people in advance and shared and circulated. And before you ever get to a point where you need to worry about, about um, how to conquer a dungeon, someone else has done it and told the entire player base what the best way to do it. And if you don't do it the way they say, then then you have to deal with those social consequences. Like,
1: yeah, I agree with you. Um, I recently picked up Divinity: Original Sin too because okay. I heard good things. I couldn't. I could. I couldn't finish the first one. Yeah. It was just not my thing. But the second one seems better. But the second one also throws like seventy quests at you in the starter town. Yikes. And you can easily fail them where you can, can't recover. You'll never get the reward. That NPC has now died, and you're like, I feel like I'm constantly hitting these roadblocks, and I felt the urge to go online and look it up and figure out the right way to do it. Yeah cuz I mean being it was so unusual to be given a quest as the hero in the game but then immediately just from a dialogue choice suddenly fail that quest. It was right. jarring. That's very old yeah. school.
0: Yeah. Um what you just described is is making me think of uh, my experience going back to play The World of Warcraft re-release in 2019 when Classic came out. I went back with a coworker buddy of mine and we re experienced the grind to max level and we did the entry level raids before we called it quits and i got through like the first 20 or 30% of the, of the 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 level experience the level up experience before i said screw it and i just got a modern questing mod that told me where to go for everything oh. because before that i was reading everything and i was lo- getting all my clues from inside the game and i wasn't looking things up and i was like really trying to be in the world
1: that's so funny, because coming from EverQuest, where so much of it was left in mystery because of the original design was crude, so they didn't have the mechanisms to convey information. Uh huh. You actually had to walk up to an NPC, you had to <clears throat> say, "Hail," watch the text that they say, pick out the word, and then ask them questions about the things that they say to try uh-huh. and find the dialogue tree. Wow. It, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was more hardcore, but it was also more rewarding when you found it or even as the community stumbled upon hidden gems that no one had found for years.
0: Cuz things can be more hidden when right. things are more
3: um
1: obfuscated, yeah.
3: Yeah, obfuscated.
1: Yeah. Um and then I was worried working on World of Warcraft that it was just too handholdy that the game felt every time I logged in after This is after four years of playing it in development. Mm -hmm. By the time it got released, I was like, I'm just like logging in. I'm doing a checklist of tasks and I'm logging out. I'm not Mm -hmm. really thinking. And that kind of bugged me. And which is why I kind of stopped playing the game after a while because I burned out on just logging in to follow that checklist. To do quests.
3: Yeah, essentially.
1: Yeah. And it kind of just, uh, I don't know. I yearned for that discovery. Like, where am I going to find that next quest? Mm -hmm. Am I in the right place? I don't know there's not just an arrow pointing me there
0: do you think there are any games that are doing a
1: good job of that these days i don't know man that's 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 a that's a discussion for someone who's better at game design than me um, <laughs> i don't know i have i have, a, I have a personal opinions um yeah i don't think any game nails it i think that games like elder scrolls online and fallout 76 uh-huh. um are a little too hand-holdy for me. They're sticker book guests where they basically walk into a zone and you're immediately given the first breadcrumb and they just pattern themselves after WoW too much. Mm -hmm. You know, I think everyone wanted a world where you weren't led to that next quest. You literally had to run out there and stumble upon it Mm -hmm. organically. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what's lost in these MMOs today. No sense of exploration and reward for exploring.
0: Yeah. um, It's interesting you shared that insight about... Uh, playing the original World of Warcraft after working in development for multiple years and feeling like you were too handheld, like it was too polished, like there was just enough mystery. I think in the modern modern era, people look back at that version of the game and see it as more old, see it as, as the old school, see it as like as like the unpolished experience compared to what it's now become over fifteen years of development, um, and. Yes, the re- the reason I prompted that question is like what's what's doing it well cuz that that feeling of discovery is something that I have struggled with a lot in in recent years. Especially the more I understand about what I'm looking for. Um, but it's also
1: yeah, that's what it is. It's what are you looking for in your experience? Uh-huh. Some people want to sit down and play Mario Brothers and some people want to sit down and forget they're in a video game and that they're they're being they're vicariously living through the hero on an adventure. And I think that people who are a little bit older, who grew up with more pen and paper games, where mm-hmm. they're used to using their imagination, used to being the hero rather than watching a movie about the hero. Right. These modern games, you're sort of along for the ride. You're not. You're not the protagonist. Yeah. You're along yeah. for the ride with the protagonist.
0: The yeah, a lot of games to really worry about, like making sure p- players feel like the power fantasy, like yep. making you feel powerful, feel like Spider Man. Right. Um,
1: well, that was. In the early development of WoW, that was one of the things that they talked about was how, like, where's WoW different than other MMOs? Like, we throw a bunch of mobs at you, and other MMOs, one mob at your level could kill you. It could be a a prolonged fight for several minutes. Mm -hmm. In WoW, you had to feel like you were a badass from the get go. So, the first thing, you can take on three wolves. You could take on two of the kobolds in the mine Mm -hmm. in Goldshire or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, as you go outside of your level-appropriate zone, yeah, you're you're in pitch battles with one-on-one. But as long as you're at your level-appropriate area, you're always a badass able to just, like, grab hordes of monsters and AoE them down.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And ESO does the same thing. Yeah, I think
0: all all AAA games do that. Yeah. Like, well, because WoW showed it worked. Yeah. And I think, I'm guessing, okay, how to, how to phrase this idea. It seems to me, from my observation, that it showed that there was a much bigger audience out there people who wanted game uh, experiences that were adjacent to the kind of gaming that was happening back 20 years ago. But that was that knocked down the barriers of, of accessibility. Like I want to experience this game, but I don't really want to have to understand my stats. I want to play this game, but I don't, I don't really want to ever die
1: yeah and I don't want to have to spend six hours to feel a little bit of progress. I want to be able to log in for yeah. thirty minutes, feel I've accomplished something and log out.
0: I've been uh taste testing the new world of warcraft expansion, and one of the and I also like just just watch the monitor the community conversation about it is one of the biggest things that's going on is the question of is the game giving enough loot mm-hmm. and it's it kind of i find it a little repulsive. <laughs> it's like uh um. It's like am, am I getting enough candy from each yeah. door when I go trick or treating? It's 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 kind of um if it, it seems almost childlike. Like th- they've the boiled part. down what they want out of the experience yeah. so far that it has no capability to surprise them anymore.
1: That's the difficulty of of an aging game is not just the power creep, but the expectation, mm-hmm. the sense of reward, you know. You don't get like it has to be now like a mythical legendary transmogged uh epic dropped from a world boss that only spawns once in a di- in a month ending and why i don't know but yeah, yeah. it's you know it's like it has to be something ridiculous before you feel a real sense of accomplishment for getting it
2: mm-hmm.
0: and also the one of the other confounding factors too that emerges is and each game approaches this differently is the role of microtransactions and how how you bring in things to the game from outside economies that are not about yeah. putting in the effort and getting lucky or being good
2: yeah
1: uh, i mean planets i dealt with that same thing it's um mm-hmm. how much do we monetize power and how much do we keep the power curve fairly flat because we want people to feel that their purchases are meaningful if they're mm-hmm. spending real money on something you don't want to just buy something and feel like ah, oh, why did i just waste that money you know so for the most part you'll see a lot of similar stats on weapons because we don't want to allow people who throw money at the game to be stronger than everyone else mm-hmm. that's like maybe it ounce but that's it
0: yeah PlanetSide seems like it's taking a somewhat unique perspective when it comes to um, selling um, I don't want to say selling power because it's not really what it is it's um, selling gameplay as opposed to just like pure cosmetics like an overwatch right. would do where nothing you buy in overwatch is going to affect the gameplay at all um, personally I'd like
1: to see more stuff like the uh, punisher punisher is a fun gun that's what I'm saying is stuff that can change the way an encounter goes
3: uh-huh.
1: you know when you have like an impulse or a black like a, a vacuum black hole effect like suddenly that bottleneck encounter in the hallway is different uh-huh and so I think that uh, that doesn't really make you more powerful because you can't take out people like if you're out in the open that impulse isn't going to do anything for you
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. so these are like situational guns that can change the way uh you know, combat flows, but it's hard to tune weapons when you're fighting one dude or you're fighting seven hundred dudes. You know?
0: Yes. Yeah. Because there could there could be one of those in a fight or there could be seven hundred of those in a fight. Yeah. And what's that look like? Exactly. That's gotta be tough. Um and one of the interesting things too, so one of the and when it comes to planet side, one of the things I, I try to always be cognizant of um is like the um the different parts of the community that kind of come out with different different things that they want out of the game and the one I have the most familiar with is the, is the hardcore infantry scene who mm. love headshots like it's what they it's what they need to survive they love headshots and they need the, the time to kill to feel right and um, I think that there can be a tendency to like feel things that add noise to the game of being right. the best mover and headshotter can feel bad to those players.
1: That is an excellent point. Um, sorry, my wife just texted me. Can I have just a minute? I need a minute too.
0: Let's take five. Great, let's take five. Great. I'll be right back, folks. Help me remember what what we were talking about when I get back. Okay, be right back. Hey, folks, we're back from our break. Me, Deeg here, Basement Side, chatting with Alan Lapidus, principal artist from Rogue
1: Planet Games, working on Planet Side Two. What were we talking about? I believe we were talking about the gameplay experience with people who want to just... purists who just want to be infantry shooting. Yeah. It like had something you want... wanted to say about that. Yeah. Um, it's difficult when you want to add or change anything to the flow of a game that it has a player base that's been with it for so long. Mm-hmm. Because while well, players constantly want... There are some players who want innovation, who want to mix things up. And then there's players that are like purists who I know the role of each weapon. I know the role, how, how to react in every situation. I know every base layout and I'm comfortable with my knowledge. It makes me, it empowers me. It lets me have a great kill count mm-hmm. and anything that shakes that up. I don't like it, you mm-hmm. know? So it's kind of hard. I mean, I can understand that because there's different people who want different things from even a shooter game.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I like to, I like shooter games where things are a little bit more bullet spongy, more the Borderlands. Oh, like
3: Borderlands. Style. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then there's people who, like I remember when Planets IT was was first starting out, like the time to kill was just so fast. You, you felt like you were getting like two tapped, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that didn't appeal to me as a gamer. But I also knew that, I can't remember which game it was, Call of Duty, Battlefield, worlds, Battlefield like yeah. there was a very fast time to kill on there as well. And people like that. But mm-hmm. Those games, when you die, you come back like 50 feet from where you died. Uh-huh. But when the map is this vast, death stings so much more. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a little harder to stomach being taken out of the fight. Right. Anyway, that's just my two cents, because I personally would like to see things like guns that, you know, like create damage over time effects, uh, resistances to kinetic, thermal, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of add some variety, mix up the meta a bit, so it doesn't just become... Do I have shields or health? And that's it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, add, add some, new, some new toys to the sandbox.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think that that very same phrase is something that I used when I was talking to Rel to describe, like, Bastion's coming in, Colossus right. coming in. Those are some examples of major major changes to the way the battle works in Planet Side. You worked on those, right?
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, Chris Bishop and I um, uh, can't remember who did the Bastion. But we worked with an outsourcer to model the bastion, mm-hmm. and then Chris kind of kind of cleaned it up, prepped it for game, did all the engineering needed to get it in. Um, and for the escalation update, the hell was I doing for the escalation update? Sanctuary. I was-, I was focusing on sanctuary.
0: Yeah. So, okay, escalation came with sanctuary with bastions. It came on on the wake. I'm gonna, I'm gonna back transition then we're gonna retransition to this see how clever okay. this is <clears throat> um, escalation came on the heels of the announcement that planet side arena was going to be closed down Right. another project that you worked on so I know that after landmark you worked on h1 z one for a little while and then on planet side arena um, mm-hmm. I'm a little more familiar with planet side IP I think I, I I want to ask you a little bit about arena about sure. your, your work on it what your what it was like to work on that project
1: well in the beginning uh Tony Morton, Carto, uh, he had a very clear vision for what he wanted. He wanted variable match themes and structures, mm-hmm. but he wanted a game where you basically just pay an, a, a reasonable upfront um, front, up front cost, and then we provide all sorts of different matches and a battle pass with costs, mm-hmm. because we'll need income to sustain the game in the long run. But the idea was that the battle pass would just be cosmetics and that you could get the battle pass items through gameplay. Okay. It seemed like a fair system. Um, and we wanted to throw in a lot, they had a lot of creative ideas for how this would play that were not your traditional VR. Right. Um, in fact, ideas which I've seen more modern games suddenly implement so that we mm. knew that those ideas were fun and solid when we were testing them. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it, <clears throat> when you're making a multi-million dollar game, it's mm. not just your baby. Mm-hmm. And so there's other people who, you know, have stake in the project. And um they want to see the project leaning a little bit more on the BR side uh uh-huh. because of the su- success of BR games they wanted the BR mode out first
2: mm-hmm.
1: they um had some other adjustments to the model but ultimately we it, we were hoping that the BR would be released it it would get some good feedback and then we'd be able to release the other modes like yeah. massive conflict and uh jump it off point. Yeah, jump jump off point. But at the same time, Apex came out as well. Right. And Apex was so well received and such a polished game that it really sort of it was an insurmountable uh challenge to Mm -hmm. make something that was more polished and more fun in BR. If we had come to the table with something other than BR, like some of our other modes, we wouldn't have to compete with them. Right. But that's just where we were at the time.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, as an outsider who from like me personally, um, I'm not much of a battle royale guy so as, yep. as, as, uh-huh. as, as i saw arena being marketed that way i just said eh, doesn't look like planet side to me um yeah i do look at what happened with a quite a quite a high amount of sympathy though um because it is at the end of the day a planet side game and it did at the end of the day not really get a chance to stretch its legs it seems like
1: yeah i mean there was i mean even the the bastion interior that i'd made was designed for expandability because we had plans on what more it would be done for. We had plans for, God, some of the ideas we had was there was going to be a team-versus-team mission that took place on a decaying orbital rig that was slowly descending towards the planet's surface. Uh-huh. and Fragments of it were gonna break off and, and and like burn off as it was falling. Like
0: progressively over time. It would change the actual yeah, arena. Because the
1: match was, had a limited amount of time. So as the planet got bigger and you were descending towards the planet and parts of the station started breaking off and the play field got smaller, you, uh, it was gonna be very cinematic and really fun. I love and that idea a, of a yeah. really
0: visual indicator of match progress. Like with totally. the planet was, getting was, bigger, that's awesome. <clears throat>
1: It was going to be basically a two fort with a shrinking arena. Okay.
0: Yeah. Wow. You just called out two fort. It hits me right in the heart, sure. man. I'm an old school Team yeah. Fortress classic junkie. You
1: I know love that? Team Fortress. That's oh. the sort of like. That's the sort of gunplay balance and class balance. Personally, I'm not a designer, so it doesn't matter what I say. But personally, I would love if Planetside 2's heavies felt heavy. You know, if their scouts felt more agile, but. I also don't know how the hell that would play with 700 people on your screen. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's hard to imagine scouts flying around in that, at that scale. <laughs> right. But yeah, I have a warm place in my heart for that that approach to team shooter balance too.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: And that's why I love big ideas and big cinematic stuff, but I'm not a designer because I don't think about all the actual realities, you know, sure. of it all. So And so...
0: Yeah. So what did you end up working on? Um, so you, you said you worked on the Bastion Interiors. I'm actually showing that off here, um, which yeah, are the, gorgeous.
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, the Bastion Interior. I also did the Loot Crate Room, where the robot opens up your crates. Right. And um, I did a lot of work on the Echoes of Amrish map. Uh-huh. The skies, the some of the props and ecosystems and... Uh, what else? And then a lot of just product uh, prop, prop placement and area design.
0: What are some of the things that, that you wanted to do with Arena visually to distinguish it from the Planetside 2?
1: Well, we definitely wanted to create themed sections of the map. In Planet Planetside 2, Amrish is pretty much just Scottish highlands, rubble mm-hmm. and rock and gravel and grassy everywhere. Uh, we wanted... To have distinct sections so you could tell where you dropped and which way you had to go, which is why we had that like central peak mountain in the middle of the map that you could see from anywhere
2: mm-hmm.
1: So we were we were trying to create a lot of like ways to easily orient yourself without having to even open the map Yep. like colored sense. buildings with numbers on them so that when you roll into a camp you could call things out to your teammates. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of cool ideas that actually I would like to see in planetside um, what else? Yeah, we wanted to do different skyboxes for the different areas. So when you roll into the crystal area, things are a little more glowy and shimmery. Mm-hmm. You know, you roll into the uh, war-torn area and everything's kind of smoky and the, the craters are billowing smoke. But yeah, and then we, I, I, if you scroll down, you can see some of the alternate skies I created for like nighttime games that had animated clouds in the distance with like lightning shooting down auroras that were streaming in the sky. Oh, that's cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was going for big cinematic visual elements. And one of the yeah. nice things about Planet Side Arena is that the art style, even if you look at it now, yeah. it really still holds up. It pops. It pops. And it's soft enough where it still feels not like you're not looking at wow, but it, you don't see like the pixelated, crunchy textures. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And that's one of the benefits of, of slightly tweaking the art style a little bit. Look at those trees. Yeah. Yeah. It looks good,
0: Alan. It's a shame we never got to see more of it.
1: Yeah. Fortunately, it's not really a lot I can use from it either. There's not much you like, can use from it?
2: No. Technical it reasons sense? or
1: Well, I mean like the tree design, these like trees with canopies that are solid so you can't shoot through them. Mm-hmm. That would seem kind of weird in a planetide game. Yeah. where traditionally light assault can get up in trees.
0: Yeah. I imagine just also cuz of scale differences they're different. All, yeah. All kinds of technical differences that have artistic ramifications.
1: I mean, I would love to. Um, like, we updated all the crates. We updated a lot of the props. Um, I love the colored buildings and the and the number of plaques that we put on them to help you call out when you enter a base. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there was a lot of good stuff. Yeah, it's a shame it didn't work out. Um, I know it hit some people hard because they had a lot of hope for it. Yeah. So,
0: Plant Arena didn't work out. It sounds like you just pretty much. Um, went right from arena over to planet side two then back returning to it what was it like to return to planet side two after being off of it
1: um exciting because speaking with rel who had been like single-handedly leading the charge to keep the game alive and and you know nick silva was running the game for a while and is was incredible because i mean He was just like pissed when he didn't get the resources he needed. And so for him, it was like Christmas when he got all of these artists and programmers to come on. And now the game could like, he revivified the game, you know, Uh all the things that they wanted to do. And it wasn't just um, Michael. It was, uh, we had a a bunch of designers. Tony was still, you know, working with us on it. And um, we also had, I'm sorry, I can't recall who else was in the room. But they had a lot of big, ambitious ideas. What were the bastions and the social space of the sanctuary? Right. Being able to actually start giving lore hints and oh, updates. Coming. I love that stuff. Yeah, me too. I love those robots on the on the sanctuary. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, we had some big plans for what we were going to do with Esmir and how it tied into the lore and where it's going still, because the campaign isn't finished. Right, right. And I'm excited about, like, showcasing heroes and villains because that's one thing planet side never really did was give you a sense of people who are not just the feet on the ground soldiers Mm -hmm. yeah like the generals
0: like people Mm -hmm. the the bases are named after stuff like that
1: totally yeah and what's going on back in the sanctuaries or sorry what's going on back in the homeland right like the tr is just a bunch of human civilizations that the Uh tr runs as a fascist government Uh uh-huh the NC are basically like spooks hired by corporations to break TR's stranglehold on the economy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the VS are like Briggs was running the show, but the VS war machine has basically taken away all of his control where Briggs is, was preaching that Vanya was coming back. We have to ascend, ascend. And now that whoever's running the VS is sort of like, yeah, 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 Briggs, uh, we got wars <laughs> to fight. So take take a seat, buddy. Yeah, yeah stay in the back and read your books it's fine yeah yeah just play with your toys
3: oh my god i
0: love i love all the little little points of tension that i'm hearing that could be introduced story wise it's got to be it's got to be hard to introduce that stuff to a game where people are so used to just like logging into the warp gate and shooting their friends like
1: i mean i want to see the game more a little bit more like destiny where it's telling a story mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm you do log in your game your moment to moment gameplay is the crazy combined arms combat and base capturing and ranking up but i want there to be an overarching story so that every season things are changing mm-hmm. maps are changing you know like it's great that you've memorized that base layout we can add a new map or we can go back and change that base you know mm-hmm.
0: and the nice thing about that too is it gives hooks for other kinds of players right who maybe traditionally have had a hard time hooking in. Um, like One of the things that always makes me sit up and pay attention when I hear, when I look, look at dev streams is like, oh, we're looking at adding adding lore, we're looking at adding more story stuff. Um, it's hard to get that stuff in there, but that's what worlds are made of at the end of the day. Yeah. We're all built to be social storytellers. And an endless arena has, has a certain appeal to it. But, um, a lot of people just want to be in worlds, and I know I'm certainly one of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why I love the campaigns and the missions because they set the groundwork for storytelling yeah. and they give us an opportunity to do isolated events that don't have to be game wide. You know, mm-hmm. the campaigns for the most part took place only on Esamir. I think you, a couple of the missions had you going to different continents, but it's kind of nice when, you know, we take the, we uh, blow the dust off of a tire old continent change things around because something has happened and there's a a campaign that gives you some cool, unique rewards that you're only ever going to get from that campaign. Mm-hmm. And then when you see some dude wearing some cool piece of armor or badge or something, and y- you ask, where did you get that? Was that on sale? He'll be like, no, man, that was that for the campaign. And back in, you know, 2020, 2021, you mm-hmm. can't get it anymore. Mm-hmm. I love that stuff.
0: Yeah, it's good. It's good because it, it means that those little bits of, um. one of the things I, I used to love about old school MMORPGs like before transmog and transmutation systems became really popular is the fact that what you saw on a person could tell you a story of experiences that they've had. Yeah, um, for sure. I played a warrior in vanilla world of Warcraft and I did raiding, And so I had the experience of wearing all kinds of feeling like off about wearing leather and mail gear to be the best perform to do the best performance and, progressing through like the, the raid tier of on courage with all the bug plate armor that this is like, why would you want to wear this? Like, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I I ended up disliking it so much that it turned into a kind of love. Like those items told a story that now, um, and I I think it's so important when you're talking about virtual worlds to make sure that the choices players can make, give them the opportunity to tell a story that actually commute it it commutes meaning. And, uh, totally.
1: Yeah, I mean, more. You be able to express yourself.
0: Yeah. Anyway, that's a very vague, <laughs> vague hope I have whenever I jump into a game these days. But anyway, Alan, we just have a, a few minutes left. Um, I think maybe a good place to end it would be to prompt you to ask, like, what what great question should I have asked you that I have not yet asked you?
1: You should have asked me about the containment site. Okay. It's coming down the pipe. Yeah. The contain
0: the containment site is this like a new base?
1: It is. It's the new superstructure that we're working on as part of the uh, next campaign update. Uh-huh. We've teased the exterior block out, and um, it's that big vertical tapered Oh, the building. huge
3: pylon-looking
0: thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but most of the gameplay is going to be below ground.
3: Uh-huh. That's hype.
1: Uh, so I'm able to create a unique skybox for it, create different moods, create themed rooms so you're not just looking at the same walls and boxes everywhere, uh-huh. um, one of the things that I really want to do, uh, we've discussed that, is we want to create, we want to break up line of sight with verticality, not just blockers. Okay. Uh, so when you roll into a room, you might be coming in at 45 degree angles instead of 90 degree angles. Mm-hmm. I want to avoid 90 degree turns to check your corners. Mm-hmm. You know, I want um, clear distinction between what's covered and what's not. So you don't run up to a railing and think you're covered in none. Right. And vaulted, and more vaulted ceilings. I want Light Assault to have some maneuverability.
3: Ooh, yeah, I like
1: the
0: sound
3: of that.
1: Yeah. So we're going to have rooms that are like lower roofs and then rooms that are cavernous. We're going to have visibility from one room into another part of the base, but you can't get there until mm-hmm. like, you you break through a section. Oh, so like, like, like
0: progressive actually, like the layout slightly changing as you capture things?
1: Well, more like you can peekaboo where the goal is, kind of like in it. the old uh, Team like Team Fortress shooters, where you can see point C through a window, but you can't get to point C yeah. unless you go
0: through point You got to go down the hallway, and up the stairs and yeah. whatever to get there, but you can kind of totally. peek in.
1: Yeah. yeah, I just, I don't like the way that all the our existing buildings and bases have you in these boxes with very limited visibility,
2: mm-hmm.
1: forcing you to feel like a rat in the maze. Mm-hmm. So I want you to be able to preview where you're going. I want things like pipes and floor markers to lead you to the sections that you want to go to. Mm-hmm. So if you're new to the space and someone says, go to whatever, I don't know, Let go to the water section, there's some sort of markers on the ground leading you there. Mm-hmm. Or there's marking on the wall. And yeah. uh, when you enter a room, you're there's, there's like pipes and other hints that tell you where the exit of the room is. Mm-hmm so you can immediately know where the heck the exit is, you can better assess where the threats are. So yeah, I'm just trying to mix things up, make it more modern, more like uh you'd see in a modern day shooter.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way you describe that makes makes the some of the existing point and base layouts seem kind of primitive by comparison. Everything you just described there sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was an ambition that the original base layouts were going to be more diverse and more themed via props, mm-hmm. but, During Operation Make Game Faster, they pulled out a lot of those unique props because they saw performance gain from having the same props everywhere. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, that just means you roll into a lot of rooms where it's just stacks of crates everywhere. Right, that's the old stack of crates. Yeah.
0: And uh, the variation is where are the crates?
1: Yes, exactly.
0: is less interesting than what, all the, everything you just talked about with vertical sight lines and railings and peaks and all that stuff. Well, I very much look forward to getting a peek at that, hopefully soon.
1: Yeah, and... when I when I'm finished off one of the nice sections and everything's sealed up and I'm happy, I'll post a screenshot.
0: What the re- the whole reason I got to know you, Alan, is because you you you've been posting that stuff on your Twitter. So yeah, uh, tell folks where they can find you.
1: Uh, I'm at a Lapidus on Twitter, and I'm on an ArtStation. If you check out Alan Lapidus, um, yeah, I mean I'm always posting stuff. I I keep Twitter pretty lighthearted. I reply to anybody who has questions for me if I can. Sometimes the questions are not in my discipline, so I can't really help. But yeah, I mean, I like to share cool stuff and get people excited. So shoot your questions over to Alan all about
0: the upcoming containment site.
3: Yeah. Yeah,
0: I'll be good. Well, thank you, Alan. This has been a pleasure. Um, I'm Deeg. This is Basement Side Chats, twitch.tv slash Deeg TV, Deeg and other places. Thanks again to you, Alan, and thanks to everyone for hanging out. This has been fun. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night
2: back.